This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our series on global food trade. We've covered sugar and spice. Next up, bites. Iran has been subjected to the far and away the most severe, stringent, painful sanctions regime uh, that has been inflicted on a country in peacetime ever. Servers would come around with little carts or trays carrying these things, and they would cry out what they were uh, providing. So you get, hog al-sumai. So my young son, when he was three or four years old, referred to deem some places as screaming places. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your uh, solo co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, and my guest is David Benzikin, founder of Mission Plant. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a, a long and uh, complicated history in a lot of different aspects of the food startup world, and, and particularly the plant-based food startup world. Um all of which have led up to your to your current company. Why don't you give us a little bit of that background? How did you get started and how did you get to where you are today? I'd be happy to. So I have been a plant-based consumer for over 20 years, and I spent the first few years of my career in the nonprofit world involved in fundraising and advocacy for various nonprofits that were promoting the benefits of uh, plant-based eating and uh, reforming our food system for environmental health and animal welfare benefits. And I loved the work, but I felt I wasn't having the impact I wanted to. And a big reason for that was that I realized that people aren't too keen to change their behavior based on being told that something is broken. They're more likely to change their behavior when they're being given options and solutions that allow them to make positive changes without sacrifice. And so in 2010, I left the nonprofit world and I got into the business world uh, by starting a firm called Plant-Based Solutions to consult early-stage plant-based consumer products companies on their strategy, their branding, their marketing. I built a team around me of very smart people who could help me do that and uh, spent a number of years working on that. Since then, I've been continuing, sold about that business, uh, founded and sold a plant-based seafood company, and now I've been focused on more consulting and some investing, and also I recently started a consumer research firm. So what are, what are some of the differences uh, between running your own company and, and advising other people or, or being involved in a less hands-on way as an investor or an advisor? Yeah, it's, it's very, very different. I think the first thing is uh, the sacrifice that one has to make as an entrepreneur is so significant. And I was aware of it, but I think I really didn't feel it the same way uh, when I was running my agency. You know, of course, I was the last to get paid or anything else because I was the founder of the company. But in a slightly different way, when you're running a, a food startup, the amount of capital that, ha- that is needed to scale a food business with all the inventory and the infrastructure and you know marketing to both the trade and consumer, there's so much that goes into building a company in this space profitably. And it takes a really, really long time and a lot of money. And so the pressure to uh, put oneself last 
in terms of uh, you know the stack of payables is is really serious and it's very very hard financially and um, very hard to build a business and survive while doing that. It, it really put things in perspective for me about how much my entrepreneurs that I'm working with sacrifice and it gave me a lot of appreciation for what they do. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you really get your ass kicked and and. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, but I mean those those back end systems, right? The I think I think a lot of entrepreneurs come in with an idea, but not a whole lot of context or or struggle with the implementation. Um, and so so companies like yours being able to support entrepreneurs through that process is obviously uh, critically important. Um, are there are there particular challenges that you saw entrepreneurs run into, or you have seen entrepreneurs run into again and again? Um, and, and were those surprising or were those kind of where you expected they would be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are some that people think will be challenges that I always am confused as to why people find them to be challenges, like not raising money, but finding investors. When people ask me if I can tell them about investors that are interested in categories, I always am a little confused because investors are not in hiding. It's whether they give their money is different than whether they're available or, or, uh, exist and are noticeable. And so that's always one that I never understood to be a challenge, but um, I really got my ass handed to me to, to say colloquially uh, with Ocean Hugger when I had to take a restaurant quality dish and scale it to mass scale. And I had come from the business side where I understood finance, I understood marketing and branding and sales and distribution. And so I went into being an entrepreneur thinking that I was set and that everything was going to be dandy. And then I had to take figure out how to take a product that used fresh whole vegetables and make product year round with it in a consistent fashion uh, at massive scale with food safety, quality assurance, consistency, good supply chain, et cetera, uh, and logistically ship it around frozen across the world uh, impeccably day after day. And that was really hard. And I think that people understand that co-packing and managing facilities and managing logistics and the supply chain and everything would be hard. But I think they still underestimate how hard it's going to be. It's, I certainly did. And it taught me a lot uh, to, to appreciate that side of the work. What, uh, what were some of the, um, I don't know, the specific lessons you learned that you've then been able to pass on to other entrepreneurs or, or things, that you, things that you had to figure out through Ocean Hugger that you've been able to share with, with others since then? Oof, yeah, I mean, uh, it took a lot longer to scale manufacturing than I anticipated. And so I think the biggest lesson was to put more time and money aside for it. Uh, and I mean, a lot more time and money aside for it. I think that I had assumed that I could, you know, focus my spend and my time on taking a great product and putting it in people's mouths through marketing and sales. And that was really only the back half of the business. The first year or two was just figuring out how to make it available, uh, on the, on the product side. And so it took a lot more time than I anticipated. And I think that working with experts who really knew how to find and manage, uh, third party manufacturers, co-mans, co-packers, whatever you want to call them was a huge advantage. I, I had underestimated, I'm not myself an operations expert. I'm more on the business side. And so I had underestimated the importance of bringing people in who knew those people who had those relationships who knew how to negotiate those deals and understood how to manage all the moving parts involved in logistics and supply chain and everything. And uh, bringing in consultants or full-time staff to manage operations was a huge learning for me. And when I finally did it, it changed the business dramatically. 
Yeah, let, I want, let's talk a little more about that. I mean, we at Pearl Lab and Barrel have have just, I mean, like today or yesterday, are going through that process ourselves. Uh, we hired our first full time employee, who is a who's our new director of operations, because we are also trying to figure out that that scale question. We have to move to a bigger co packer, um, and and that transition has been you know, is easier for us than for most other companies in that we're not making a product that has a lot of steps. We import it and, you know, obviously work with our partner farmers to produce it. But um, but so many companies struggle with that transition, right, from making something yourself or sort of yourself in a commercial kitchen or or even in your home kitchen uh, to then be able to scale it up to to trust that uh, that that recipe will be made consistently and to your standards by a, a, a co-packer or a co-manufacturer who may not have uh, the same passion and appreciation for the product that you do when you're making it yourself. <laughs> um, how how have you seen companies navigate that? Uh, why do you think that process is so hard? And what um, what advice do you have to to get through it? Yeah, I think that there is part of it is is really about misunderstanding and and not aligning the interests of the manufacturer and of the brand. That is to say, I think we we have a tendency as entrepreneurs to see the pain that distributors or brokers or manufacturers or whoever may be put us through and then to vilify them for it. And look, sometimes they are predatory. Um, sometimes it's also the nature of their business. You know, I'll give you an example. Distribution is a very low margin business where they are having to float debt, very heavy debt um, for shipping around trucks and trucks of products and not getting paid back for months. So when we get frustrated with how distributors charge all kinds of promotional rates. We're right. They are being predatory and it's also how they survive. Um, Co-packing is much the same way. I think that we get frustrated with um, how inflexible contract manufacturers can seem to be, but really contract manufacturers, or at least those that are full-time contract manufacturers and build their business around using their lines um, on a, you know, almost rented basis to manufacture multiple things a day for different companies are really working in a traditional assembly line setting. And they need to think about how do they move items from machine one to machine six, you know, from, you know, washing to to sealing the container um, in a seamless way as efficiently as possible. Um, and there are a lot of moving parts there. Machines require different quantities. You know, when I hear people are like, oh, why could they have such high minimum volumes? Well, sometimes machines are so big that they can't actually work unless there's a certain amount of product inside of it. Or um, just the amount, that, the time and money it takes to wash the whole line and train the staff on a new product means that having a product come in, if it's not going to be produced in sufficient enough quantity, just isn't efficient on the cost side for the manufacturer. So I think it's really about understanding each other's pain points and trying to solve problems with the other person's feelings in mind. And so as an example, I'm working with a company that's looking at manufacturing some alternative um, to dairy. And they recognize that the dairy industry is very, very high minimum volumes for manufacturing. And because they're commodity products, you know, milk and these things are commodities that sell huge volumes at very low, low dollars. And so they do require very large volumes. And so you have to think about how can you creatively work with them to solve for that? Do you try to make your products longer shelf life so you have fewer larger production runs? Or do you try to find a way to um, 
you know, build into your financial model, being able to spend a little extra money on extra production that you won't necessarily be able to sell right now and use that to sample heavily in order to drive more trial and awareness of your product. You know, there are different solutions, but the first thing is understanding the perspective and needs of the other side so that we can, you know, solve each other's problems. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely a challenge. And I think even even more so challenging because often those questions are you're trying to answer those questions without having a good sense of uh, who your customer is or who your customer will be or um, how your business is going to evolve uh, through that process. Um, and I know you've, you've also uh, fairly recently started a, a, is it an offshoot or another company to do consumer research? Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So over the years, I've identified several pain points in the industry that uh, affected me as an entrepreneur and affected the companies that I'm invested in and also many, many, many of the companies that I advised, particularly as a consultant over the years, I've been advising companies on their branding or on which order in, in which order to release products or what price to charge for them and all these things. And I'm doing so based on historically based on some estimations or anecdotal evidence because most brands that I have worked with historically have not had the money to pay the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy one of two kinds of data. The first being scanner sales data, which is what you buy from a company like Nielsen or Spins, where they show you um, how much of a product is selling at each store. And that's extraordinarily expensive. And the other kind of data is uh, market analysis data, the kind of thing that you get from a Mintel or Euromonitor or Markets Markets, which usually involves um, either consumer insights from studies that are done on consumers themselves or an attempt at aggregating a lot of different reports out there into very vague and usually very fallible wrong reports about mass trends. And all of these are the kinds of data that companies would use to decide how big a market opportunity is or whether to make the product gluten-free or soy-free or all those kinds of things. But since the brands I was working with couldn't afford that, I was having to give them advice based on kind of best assumptions. And it's really scary because if you charge a dollar more in a ca than, than you should have in a category where the range of prices is one to three dollars, most are at two and you're at four, that's a massive difference. And you're gonna have to do a lot of work to justify that and if consumers aren't convinced, you might have blown your chance to be in the market with all those stores and consumers. Same with faulty, you know, bad packaging or branding or, you know, choosing, you know, releasing a product that you thought sounded cool but wasn't that much in demand. So what I've recently done is started a company called Moonshot Collaborative, and we have a standing panel of thousands of consumers who with whom we can test product ideas branding, like designs and messaging, um, even sensory tests like taste, texture, aroma, appearance of different products. And our specialty is really doing this with consumers who are interested in plant-based products. So our panel is made up entirely of people who have purchased plant-based products, meaning alternatives to um, meat, dairy, or eggs, in the last 90 days. And that seems like a limiting factor, but actually, if you consider how many people occasionally drink an almond milk or occasionally have tofu or a veggie burger, it's about 40% of Americans who fall into that category. And so with this very large population of people who are 
you know, slightly more open and thoughtful and conscientious about their purchases, we're able to test a lot of things um, to make sure that brands are making the most effective and cost-effective decisions about what to do with their products and launches. Have have there been surprising findings or uh, responses that you weren't expecting? Yeah. So we just did a study that I was really, really keen on finding out the results to around price sensitivity. And what we were looking at was, are people willing to pay a premium for plant-based products? And if so, to what extent? And we did that study and we found that the majority of people were willing to pay a slight premium, but the degree to which that was the case was very, very much smaller than we anticipated. Uh, I'm just pulling it up now. <laughs> um, but it turns out that while uh, while three in four consumers were willing to pay a premium, so they were willing to pay more for a plant-based version of an animal product, only one in 25 was willing to pay 50% or more premium. And even when you looked at what you know, most people were willing to pay, the vast majority of people were not willing to pay anything more than 10 or 20% higher. When you think about how much more expensive most of the plant-based or gluten-free or specialty or anything products are out there, if these are the kinds of price sensitivities that even those conscientious shoppers uh, have, then we have to be really aware of what we're doing and, and our assumptions around how much we can charge you know, have to be really, really carefully thought out. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is David Benzikin, founder of Mission Plant and Moonshot uh, Collaborative. To, to follow up on that last point that you made, do you feel like price is the, is the biggest obstacle uh, to get people to overcome in, in incorporating more plant-based foods into their diets or or are there, I mean, I'm sure there are other issues as well, but how do you feel like price compares to those other issues? Yeah, it's, it is a commonly held belief and I think very accurate that taste, price, and convenience are the three largest drivers of purchase decisions when it comes to food. 
And I think it applies to things far beyond food in fashion as well. When I'm buying clothes, I'm buying them based on whether I like the style, that's the taste. I'm buying them whether or not I can afford them and whether it makes sense within my spend. And I'm buying them on whether I have to travel to the ends of the earth to find them. Food is the same way. And I think when you look at the plant-based segment, where we're seeing the biggest adoption, the biggest growth is in places where there's been real, there have been real adva- advancements in taste and in price. So for example, uh, 16% of all fluid milk sales in the U.S. right now are non-dairy. That's more than five times uh, you know, the percentage of any category of any other. So in yogurt, it's about 3% are non-dairy. In meat, only about 1% of meat sales are actually plant-based meats. So why have we seen that in milk? Well, I think it's the fact that We've seen huge strides in price competitiveness and also the amount of diversity we've seen in different milk options and the fact that they're refrigerated and being offered in the same formats and variety, if not greater variety, than the dairy options means that everybody's finding something that's something that they're happy with. And so maybe you don't like a rice milk, but maybe you like a cashew milk, or maybe you don't like this, but maybe you like that. There's so much variety now that that taste barrier has been overcome because everybody's able to find something they like. And on price, with the wide variety and with the fact that very large companies like Danone and um, major global food companies are carrying large plant-based milk brands, we're now seeing those prices drop because of the economies of scale they can bring to the table. That's happening even more now as stores are starting to launch private label or own brand products of these kinds of things where prices are are dropping even more and sales are skyrocketing. So I think that price is a really, really big factor. And it also comes down to understanding the difference between novelty or very occasional purchase and frequent purchase. If we think about how often somebody is going to eat something that they think is really extraordinary, no matter how good it is, it's still going to be limiting if it's too expensive. I'm a fairly, fairly affluent person. I'm a personally a 100% plant-based eater and I'm, you know, urbane, professional, you know, all those things and very conscious about what I eat, but I still am only spending, you know, I'm still only spending 10 bucks on a cashew cheese once every two months or so because it's still a luxury. And so for most consumers who are not like me, that's an even bigger lift. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about this sort of blend of entrepreneurship and activism or business and social change that that you have been involved in in, in various capacities throughout your career. Um, and, and I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs aspire to, but then either they get stuck in, in the mechanics of their business because that's where the challenge is and, and they have trouble moving on the activist goals that they they had set out to, to work towards. Um, or it turns out that it's a lot harder than they thought uh, to to have a business that fundamentally moves the needle on on a social issue, uh, because the systems around you make that uh, difficult or impossible. Um, how have you how have you navigated that? How have you kept the your eye on the prize, so to speak? And, and how have you found the balance in the in the various companies that you've started and, and worked with? Sure. So there's a Harvard Business School concept around doing well by doing good. And when you read the articles that have been put out about this concept from the Harvard Business Review, or when you speak to the scholars at Harvard Business School or at other other business schools who talk about this concept, I'm really disturbed by the examples they use to describe what doing well by doing good is. And I really think that they need to rephrase what they're doing as doing well while doing good. That is to say, 
if, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken sells a gallon Big Gulp soda and gives a dollar of every sale to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which they did a couple years ago, were to call itself doing well by doing good, I'd say that's ludicrous because they're creating diabetes and then supposedly doing something good or in theory doing something good to address it, but it's quite problematic. What I find is really doing well by doing good is where the very product or service that one is selling is in and of itself replacing something that is less uh, beneficial to the world. And if that's the case, then one needn't worry about how they can try to split their time between other charitable causes or can they offset it by trying to give a few pennies here or there to some other thing. It's wonderful if you can do more. But if your very product is in and of itself making the change, then you can comfortably and confidently and proudly commit yourself to being as successful with that product as possible and that is changing the world. And I aim as best I can to get involved in companies where every day I genuinely believe that the sales of those products are saving animals, saving human lives, and saving trees. And if I'm doing that, then the rest of my time is uh, time I can spend with my family because I know that every minute professionally is going into what's most impactful. And and how do you how do you recommend that people do that? Or how do, how do they? That's that's often easier said than done. Coming up with an idea that will that will have that downstream effect that you're talking about um, is is challenging. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people think they're doing it, and then it turns out when they when they actually wind up doing it, it, it doesn't work in the way that they had expected it would. How do you sure. how do people set set that up from from the beginning when they're starting a company or or building out an idea? Yeah, I think it has to do with being aware that we can't solve everything and being very upfront and clear and strict with oneself about what their non-negotiables are. So anytime I work with a company and they're starting a business or they're developing their, their brand or deciding what they're going to be going to market with, I work with them to define, you know, everybody talks about mission and vision and values. All of those are extraordinarily important, but values are very vague. If you think about it, Every company I've ever spoken to has said to me their values include health, sustainability, respecting workers, blah, 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 right? And that's fantastic. They should care about all those things. The problem is, what does that mean? Does sustainability mean that you'll never, ever, ever use plastic in any pen, in any packaging, in any anything? Does it mean that you'll be carbon neutral? Does it mean that you will, you know, recycle every, you know, everything you use? You know, with health, does that mean that you're never going to serve something that has added sugar in it? Does it mean that you're going to exclude all kinds of ingredients? Does it mean, you know, there's so many ways to define these concepts. And so when I talk about non-negotiables, there are things that have to be extremely tangible and uh, they are either yes or they're no. Our products will always be 100% organic. If that's a stance you take, take it, hold to it, and never never stray from it. Or we will never use plastic. Okay, cool. That's that. For me, it's that the products I'll use will always be 100% plant-based. And I love when I can add to that and the list can be broader than that. Like in my last company, Ocean Hugger Foods, our products were actually extraordinarily clean labeled because 95% literally of the net weight of our product was a whole fresh vegetable. um, And the rest was common ingredients you'd find in your pantry, like sesame oil um, and soy sauce. So we were able to be extremely uh, focused on health and clean, clean label as well. But at the end of the day, my non-negotiable was plant-based. And I think that 
one can have one or multiple, but it's so important that they be defined up front and it makes it easier to not sacrifice. So, uh, sorry, to, to not sacrifice things that are of importance. So every day you're going to realize that the more corners you cut, sometimes you can actually make your product cheaper and you can actually sell more volume potentially. And maybe that's going to increase your impact if your product is displacing something less good. But what corners are you cutting and are those actually undoing the good you're trying to achieve? So I would never sell something that was made with slave labor, even though uh, my real priority is plant-based. Why? Because even if it makes it cheaper, it's still not okay with it. And I don't think it's acceptable. And so I'm willing to sacrifice the added sales to maintain those values. And frankly, I think that it probably helps me in the long run with consumers anyway. (laughs) But I think knowing those non-negotiables up front really, really helps and allows one to focus then on maximizing success and acknowledging that they can't solve for everything at once. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. And I think this gets, especially with what you were saying earlier about um, uh, market research and uh, really getting good data about a product and a, and a market fit. I think this gets at one of my favorite questions about entrepreneurship, which which is around the, the art and science, right? There's always a balance. There's always that sort of gut feeling. Is your passion around plant-based food or is it around preventing slave labor? Or is it around you know, any, any number of other things, um, and channeling that into your entrepreneurial endeavor, but then at the same time, paying attention to the science of it, what do consumers want? How do you get that data in a, in a reliable way? How do you integrate data that you are collecting through the process of the business, whether that's, um, you know, website conversion rates or, uh, all of the other data that, that comes pouring in from every direction all the time. Um, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. How do you find a balance? How do you how do you know when to make a gut decision versus a data driven decision? Um, and and how do you uh, how do you learn uh, uh, how to do that? It's an extremely important and tough question, and one is never going to have one hundred percent of the data. I mean, if you had asked professionals what Lacroix would have what success Lacroix would have had with their hideous branding and, and cans for their sparkling water they would have been told that it'd be the least successful brand of all time uh, by contrast two years ago Pamplemousse Lacroix was the number one most popular Halloween costume in the US so <laughs> as a Halloween costume would have been that's, a, that's an yes. incredible statistic um, well, and, and, and 11 years ago or 11 or 12 years ago, I was at a trade show representing a plant-based non-dairy ice cream brand. And uh, next to me was one of the nicest guys with his uh, better for you dairy ice cream brand and super nice guy. People seem to say nice things about the product. I didn't taste it because I'm plant-based myself. And I, you know, I thought to myself, man, what a nice guy. It's such a shame that he's not going to go anywhere because everybody knows frozen yogurt and, you know, healthy ice cream. Nobody cares for that anymore. Everybody wants to separate what's decadent from what's healthy and they don't care for that. Well, it was Halo Top. And um, I now have to eat my words for recognizing that it's been one of the most successful brands of all time. And so yeah. one can only do so much predicting or, or research. Um, it's important that you define what you're trying to achieve first and that you don't use the market to tell you what you should be trying to achieve, but that you use the market to define how you do that. So when I work with clients and we're trying to decide all kinds of issues from positioning and branding and marketing and what to make and prices and all these things, I do two things. First, I work outside of their visibility on a 
market and competitive landscape where I identify who's in the market, what are the differentiators that each brand is using, what are the things that we call tickets to ride, that is, um, what are things that if you don't have as an attribute about your product in that category that you'll never be taken seriously, right? So if you were selling um, uh, in chips and you were only willing, and you, and you had it in eight pound bags, you would not be acceptable in most stores, right? So understanding, having smaller bags of chips, probably fairly essential in a certain category. Then there are things that are just all, make you also ran that you don't have to be, but having it is kind of, you know, not very differentiating and just uninteresting. So, um, you know, Sabra was brilliant when they decided to market themselves as being plant, uh, as being uh, gluten-free for their hummus, even though hummus is always gluten-free. Now, if somebody else tried to go on that path, it probably wouldn't be very valuable for them. So first, I'd like to understand what the market looks like. What are people looking for? What are the pain points consumers have that are not being solved? Then I work with the brand without notifying them of what I found in the marketplace. And we dig up from their core, why are they doing what they're doing? What do they care about? What does the world look like if they're successful? Their vision, their mission, and yes, they're non-negotiables. At the end, I have what is their brand internally and what is the external marketplace. And I biangulate those almost like an event diagram where I say, okay, I know that they're trying to achieve X. The market needs Y. How do those cross over? So if the brand cares about health and, the, and there are opportunities to be the you know less processed or the one that is lower in sugar, those are two big pain points that could be solved for. Well, either one of those are paths they could take. If the pain point in the marketplace is um, to be the decadent, most rich, most unhealthy one, that's not going to be a fit for that brand and they'll have to look for another. So we identify multiple white spaces and then we see which one of those is aligned with what the brand's goals are. And that becomes the brand's positioning. Who are they and in what context? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great way to approach it and, and very, uh, yeah, very holistic, um, which which ultimately is the most important thing. Um, I want to make sure we have some time for for some fun questions <laughs> before we wrap mm-hmm. up. Uh, let's let's uh, yeah let's let's go there. Um, what is your desert island kitchen tool? Oh man, uh, <laughs> I think I'd have to say an apple core. Mm, interesting. That uh, we have never gotten that one before. You got to <laughs> tell me. You got to tell me more. Uh, well, I have this particular apple core. That is, that is one that has the core in the middle and that has the uh, blades to slice it on the sides. I don't even eat that many apples. I do like apples, but I just love the satisfaction of in one slice being able to take out the core and create perfect slices all around. As a parent to a young kid, it is such a functional tool that things like that make me very, very happy and satisfied with the time saving they provide. <laughs> I love it. An apple core. Um, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? Ooh. Oh, man, I eat a lot of vegetables, obviously, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, uh, uh, maybe a mushroom because I just think they are awesome. I'm not I know they're not tech. I don't know. I don't know if they. Sure. Whatever. I don't know if fungi count as <laughs> vegetables, enough. but I'm going to treat it as one. Um, and uh, I love fungi because I think the mycelium networks, they grow underground and the way they are responsible for so much of life and 
just the entire ecosystem contribution they create and how networked they are and how intelligent they are. I just think they're amazing. Do you have a, a go-to recipe or, or a preparation that you usually use with mushrooms? I am very privileged to live in a household with an incredible cook, uh, and I am not one. Uh, and so I defer to whatever I have the honor of eating each night, which in- frequently includes mushrooms and many preparations. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Um, what was a, a common meal in your house growing up, a, a lunch or a, a breakfast, something that you would eat together as a family? Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate to grow up in a European household where eating together at the dinner table was essential. And every single night we had some kind of lean protein, some kind of whole grain, always a salad, and nine times out of 10 fruit for dessert. Um, food was always home cooked, eating out or eating takeout was very rare. And the most special part, anyways, it was a slow food experience. The most special part about that was obviously the health benefits of having a thoughtfully uh, create, you know, thoughtfully put together a nutritious meal. But also in that experience, I was sitting at a table. I was with my family, with my loved ones. Everybody had to contribute, whether it was cooking, washing, cleaning afterwards, setting the table, whatever. And during dinner every day, you know, as kids, we were asked about how our day was, how we were feeling about things, what our thoughts were on current events. And so I grew so much emotionally, socially, and physically through the nutrition that I got from my family meals. There is not a single experience in my childhood that I think was more significant than eating dinner every night with my family, having a responsibility at the table, and getting to grow intellectually and socially and emotionally with them through that. What was your What was your favorite meal or, or your favorite dish, the thing that you got most excited about when, when it was put down on the table? Oh, man. Uh... I don't even know. My, my diet changed so much of the years that it's hard to say. Uh, before I was vegan, I was a big Brie cheese fan. <laughs> so that was a big go-to snack for me. Now I still crave it, but the, the, there it's rarer to come by good vegan Brie cheese, though there are some excellent ones. I just had one from a brand called Jules, which is insane. Um, but yeah, I think Brie, anything with Brie was my go-to, my dream. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. Is there a business idea that you, that you think somebody should, should act on, but nobody has yet? Is there something that, that you've thought about that, that, uh, you're sort of disappointed hasn't, you haven't seen somebody bring into, into reality that I feel like sharing today. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are so many opportunities. If you look at the plant-based space, which is obviously where I focus my energy and, and excitement, we have seen, you know, everybody thinks the market's saturated because it's so big. The reality is it's anything but. Milk and burgers are very busy. Outside of that, find me, you know, three fantastic brands in any other section. In yogurts, I can name one or two that are decent. Ice creams, same, if that. Um, salad dressings, uh, you know, meatballs, deli slices, seafood. In the plant-based world, outside of milk and outside of burgers, We've got a lot of room to go pork, poultry, everything. And so I, I am excited that there is there are a plethora of opportunities for people who want to disrupt the uh, broken, broken animal food system we have to do so uh, in any category they wish. Yeah. Um, where can our listeners uh, learn more about you and your work and, and uh, learn more about the research that, that you do? Sure. So we'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash David Benzigan. Um, missionplant.com moonshotcollaborative.com 
And please check out, uh, if you go to missionplant.com, you can find some of my clients in portfolio companies that are doing some really excellent work. Um, I'd love for them all to, to, uh, for you to try all their products and for you to support their work. And as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find us on social media, whyfoodpodcast on Instagram. Uh, you can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, on Instagram at Burlap and Barrel. And you can reach Valerie on Instagram at Foodie in New York. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. And most of all, David, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I, I feel like I learned a lot and I hope, uh, hope our listeners have too. Thank you for having me. See you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.